Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. We're going to read the passage first this morning and then pray over our time together. So, Romans chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 10. Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Let's pray. Father, we, we are your people and this is your word. I've prepared some things to say about it, things that are difficult to communicate well. And so, as always, God, we, we need your help this morning. Would you help me to speak honestly and, and boldly, but at the same time, God, help me to be balanced and accurate and compassionate. And insofar as what I say is faithful to the text, God, would you would you use this time for our good this morning, please? Would you use it to convict and to encourage? Would you use it maybe even to save this morning? It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. There's a popular story in the Gospel of Luke that has um, had a, a large impact on me ever since I was a young Christian. And, and you all know it, I'm sure. It's, it's the story of Jesus dining with Simon the Pharisee, and while they were reclined at the table eating, an unnamed woman enters the house. And I say unnamed because we don't know who she was. There's some theories out there, but the Bible doesn't actually tell us who she was. All that we know about her is that she was considered to be a sinner by the religious people in her community. And when she had made her way to Jesus, she was uncontrollably crying and sobbing, and she, she knelt down low next to Jesus' feet so that her tears began actually wetting his feet as they were dropping off of her face. And so she used her hair then at that point to dry his feet, basically washing his feet with her own tears and hair. And when she had washed his feet, she then started kissing his feet, and then she anointed them with ointment. And, and even in that time period, that's extreme for us, but even in that time period, that was a stunning display of humility and love. It was a stunning display of respect and honor and adoration towards Jesus. Or if I were to use a, a term that's more familiar to us, a religious term, it was worship. It was pure and it was passionate worship. And, and as sinful as her life may have been up to that point, as right as they might have been to call her a sinner, 
And as fallen as her heart might have been, even in that very, that very moment of worship, she was the only one that evening in the entire room that properly felt and properly responded to the love of God in Christ. The only one. Because the only way you can be so moved to worship in that kind of genuine and even, even self-abasing manner, the only way you can do that is if you've experienced something profound, something powerful. And what she was experiencing was a new hope in God based on, based on a new realization of God's love for her in Christ. And maybe you remember from the story, how did she realize God's love toward her in Christ? What does the story tell us? Jesus said, and this is the point, Jesus said it's because she realized the weight of her own sin. She realized the weight of her own sin. And explaining her worship to this disgruntled room who didn't approve of it, Jesus put it this way, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And the one who is forgiven little loves little. Which is to say that, that, that the one who knows the depth of their sin, the one who knows the depth of their depravity, the weight of their debt, as it were, and offenses against their Creator, and what that sin debt is going to mean for them when they face Him on the last day. The person that knows that and that feels that when they find out that God has forgiven them and forgiven them at great cost to His Son, when they find that out, they will know the love of God and they will respond in love. And Jesus says they will love much. And conversely, he says, therefore, the one who doesn't love much doesn't know or understand the depth of their sin. They don't know what they've been forgiven in the gospel, so they don't, they don't respond the same. And that's a, that's a hard reality to face because if we ask ourselves then, why don't we live in more in a more self-forgetting and worshipful awe of who God is for us and who's revealed himself to be for us in Christ. Why don't we do that? Why don't we feel that as we ought to? One of the answers might be because our sin is not as big of a deal to us as it ought to be. The one who's been forgiven of much, who knows that, loves much. Or you could put it this way, a little more simply, that woman, in Luke's gospel, experienced the quality of God's love by knowing her unloveliness. She experienced the quality of God's love by knowing her unloveliness. And that, that's the perfect lived example for our passage in Romans this morning. The operative verse in the passage is verse 8. We're going to stay very closely tied to the text today. In verse 8 it says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, if you want to know the love of God as God has offered for you to know it, you must, you must, you must start with the reality of your sin. There's no shortcuts. Not if you want the real thing anyway. 
Just like that sinful woman in Luke's gospel, we are meant to experience God's gospel love, his saving love for us. We're meant to experience it by knowing how unlovely we were and in so many ways still are outside of Christ. And this is counterintuitive. We Let's just be honest, we don't go here naturally. When we're sitting back thinking, I would really like to feel loved today, we don't think to ourselves, I know, I'll dwell on how awful I am, and I'll feel really good then. I'll feel really loved after I think about how awful I am. And that's how ridiculous this, this formula, if you will, can sound. I know that. But please hear me this morning. Better yet, please hear the passage this morning. Hear Paul If in your pursuit of experiencing God's love, you dodge this necessary order of first being aware that you are a sinner and knowing the weight of your sin outside of Christ, if you try to feel loved by dodging that, you will do at least two harmful things to yourself. Number one, you will rob yourself of knowing and experiencing the love of God as you're meant to know and experience it as a Christian. And number two, as we'll see later in the passage, you will rob yourself of experiencing the hope you are meant to have in the glory to come. Because because it's a necessary consequence of the first one. By losing the love you're meant to feel from God, you simultaneously lose something of the hope you're meant to have in God. There's no avoiding that. They're connected. They're linked. And so so this is what we're going to be working at for the remainder of our time this morning. Basically three parts to the sermon. First, we're going to be focusing on our sin for all that it is. And we're going to be asking, what does Paul say about our sin in this passage? And he says a lot. And so we're going to be spending a, a chunk of time here. Second, we'll be asking, what does that knowledge of our sin, how does that knowledge, rather, of our sin help us to feel more loved by God, according to the passage? And then lastly, based on what we see from those two things, we'll be asking, how do these things help us to have more hope in God? So, what does Paul say about our sin? How does that knowledge of our sin help us to feel more loved by God? And how do those things help us to have more hope in God? Now, before we get started, I just want to say this last part here. In this first part, when we're we're looking at our sin in the passage, it's not fun to listen to. And I know that. And it's not fun to preach it either. And I hope you know that. Well, what I'm trying to do is, is what I, I, I truly believe is for our good this morning. This isn't about some kind of fiery or hard preaching on sin. I, I'm genuinely wanting to try to exalt God's love for us and better solidify our hope in God. That's my aim because I think that's Paul's aim in the text. But he takes us down a difficult path to get there, and so we have to follow him down that path if we want to get there as well. So hopefully, halfway through this first part, you guys don't start throwing things at me, okay? So part one, what does Paul say about our sin in this passage? 
In our passage, he uses no less than seven descriptions of fallen humanity, seven in just five verses. And with the exception of Jesus himself during his time on this earth, every one of these descriptions applies to every single person who has ever lived and every single person that ever will live. Paul is giving a description of all humanity in our natural state outside of the grace of God in Christ. And that's an important thing to note here. I'll throw in some reminders along the way, but as we work through this, just remember that everything being described applies to humanity outside of saving grace, outside of Christ, not of saved, regenerate Christians who are presently in Christ and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. So the first description from Paul is in verse 6. He says, For while we were still weak, weak, weakness is, the, is what Paul chooses to highlight first. And the, wor- the word's used in a few different ways by Paul himself in, in some of his different epistles. But here, it's used to describe man's utter inability to save himself. His moral and spiritual inability to turn to God or to love God. You could word it this way. It's referring to our imprisoning love affair with sin. It's later described by Paul in chapter 8 as us only always setting our minds on the things of the flesh, such that we are by our very nature incapable of submitting to God's law or living in a manner that would be pleasing to Him. Or in chapter 6, Paul describes it as mankind being slaves of righteousness. Or in chapter 3, he describes it as mankind being subjugated to the permanent binding power of sin. And he uses the language of being, quote, under sin. We are weak, according to Paul. That is, we lack the necessary moral and spiritual strength to lift ourselves out of the wretched state that we find ourselves in. We're not only unable to save ourselves, but we're unwilling to do so. We're unwilling to do so. In fact, in a mysterious way, you you could also say we're unable because we're unwilling. And we're unwilling because we're unable. That's the, the mystery of iniquity inside of us. We are weak, lacking the necessary spiritual strength and qualities to save ourselves. That's the first description. Second description of our sin from Paul. It's still in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. And this is an extremely common term in the Bible, and it's applied to a host of different things. But most fundamentally, it's been defined this way. It has to do with violating the norms of a proper relationship with your God, with your Creator. It has to do with irreverence and impiety. Chapter 1, Paul uses the language of us, quote, exchanging the glory of God in preference for the perceived glory of lesser created things, and even of us not seeing fit to to acknowledge God in our hearts and minds. Don't even want to think of Him. 
So in defining this word, some, some use the language of being, quote, destitute of reverential awe towards God. And therefore, ungodliness often becomes synonymous with the idea of utter wickedness, utter wickedness. We can even see something of that in the English word that, that we often use to translate it, ungodly, ungodly, to not be godlike, maybe. Now, the third and the fourth descriptors that Paul uses are both in verse 7, and they are both, they're both there by implication. Paul's making an intentional contrast in verse 7. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Which is to say, outside of Christ, we are considered to be neither righteous nor good. We are, by contrast, to be considered unrighteous and lacking goodness, according to Paul here. I told you this would be fun. The fifth description he uses is in verse 8. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners. Now, now we probably all know what the general idea of sin is, but, but one way that you can define sin is, is something like this. It's to violate the command or the will or the glory of God with our thoughts or affections or words or actions. That's a broad, general definition that you could use for what it means to sin. But the, but the way Paul seems to be using the term sinner here has more to do with, with an inward state of being and less to do with being guilty of outward actions like that. Maybe you've heard it stated this way. It's a common way to say it. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That is, we sin because it's what and who we are. And we can't change that, the Bible says, any more than a leopard can change his spots. And this is why the Bible presents it to us, that we're in such a dire need of saving grace in Christ that would cause us to be reborn, to have a new heart and a new mind and new affections because we're, we're absolutely hopeless without it. Now, I've heard the objection many times. I've even raised it at one point. And maybe this has come to your mind also. That if fallen humanity can't help but to sin because it's who they are by nature, then surely that takes away at least some of the culpability. They can't help it. Right? And counterintuitively, the answer in the Bible is no. In fact, it doesn't deplete culpability, it compounds it. It compounds it. Moral inability does not decrease what you could call damn-worthiness any more than it decreases praiseworthiness. Here's an example from the Bible, from 1 John. John teaches that God is pure, undefiled, unpolluted light. 
Which is to say that he is so morally upright, so holy, so righteous through and through to the core of his being, to the core of his essence, that he is, so, that he is morally unable, unable to ever sin or to do that which is unrighteous. Not only can he not do it, he can't even be tempted to do it, the Bible says. The thought or the inclination would not and cannot enter his mind or heart. Which is to say that God is so good and so right that he can do nothing but that which is good and right in keeping with his character. And so I ask you this question. Knowing that about God, I'm going to assume everyone agrees with that, knowing that about God, does that make God less praiseworthy? Because he's so perfect and pure that he's unable to ever sin? Does that make him less praiseworthy? Because he is, he's a being of such moral quality that he can't do otherwise. And the answer should be obvious from the Bible. It is a resounding no, no. According to the Bible, it's that very level of purity that makes him all the more praiseworthy. It's what puts him in the category of holy. It's what causes angels to worship in heaven around the throne day and night. That kind of purity. And so conversely, using that same biblical logic... A creature that is so fallen and so corrupt that it can never fully or properly submit to that which is good or right isn't less culpable, but more culpable. Not less damn worthy, but more. Not less evil, but more evil. So evil it can't stop doing what is wrong. Sixth description Paul uses of us in our sin. It's found in verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That is, outside of Christ, we are individuals who are justly under the wrath of God. Because the necessary result of fallen mankind being, as Paul has described it, not me, Paul has described it so far, the necessary result of us being weak, ungodly, unrighteous, no good sinners, the necessary result of being those things is that all humanity is rightly and justly subject to the wrath of God. His present temporal wrath and, most importantly, what Paul's referring to, his eternal wrath wrath. And we have a name for this place where we experience this wrath. We call it hell, the final place of eternal judgment, a place where you're locked outside of the glorious presence and blessings of God forever. Now, I don't like to, to usually directly refer to a Greek word, but, but I think it's helpful here, maybe, in, in helping us understand what's, what this is communicating, this wrath of God, that word. The word that's being used is the word orge. It's where we get the English word orgy. Now, 
we've sexualized that word. But we've done so because what it is meant to communicate is unrestrained passion. Or even it's been defined violent emotion. And so when it's, when it's used in reference to God's response to sin and to sinners, it's meant to communicate the violent, unrestrained, passionate anger of God over all evil and over all wickedness. Over all that's rebelliously out of step with his character and his will. Of all that's wrongly marred and twisted the goodness of his creation. All that degrades his glory. The the language is meant to encapsulate concepts that we see in the book of Hebrews like God is a consuming fire and it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this might seem like an odd thing to say after describing it that way, but there's a reason. This is not a place that people want to go. Here's why I say that. Because many people, including some very respected theologians in history, have, I think, partly rightly and partly confusingly described hell as a place where the doors are locked from the inside. That hell is God respecting mankind's free will. And mankind chooses to not worship God, and therefore, by default, he chooses to go to hell. And God's saying, if that's what you want, okay, I'm respecting your free will here. And once in hell, the torment they experience is often described as the sadness and the violence and the dehumanization that results from a group of beings who are wholly separated from their Creator forever, wholly separated from what they were meant to be, what they were made to be. Now, I don't know everything about what hell's going to be like. I don't know. But I do know this. However much of that description of hell is accurate, hell is not a mere respecting of free will or human choice. It is never, ever described in the Bible as somewhere any being wants to go by choice. Demons cry out to Jesus not to be sent to the judgment before their time. It's described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where people plead not to be thrown into by the angels that are dragging them against their will away from the presence of God on the day of judgment. In parables, it's a place where people do their best to sneak into the wedding feast, even though they don't have the proper garments awarded to them, trying to hide, hoping they don't get caught and cast into outer darkness as a result. No one wants hell in the Bible. It is the active wrath of God. Or gay, that is, it is the unrestrained outpouring of omnipotent anger and just retribution from the God of the universe, and it never ends. It never ends. And Paul says this, knowing the horror and the gravity of the subject, 
with fear, with trembling, and even in other places like chapter 9 with obvious tears. He tells us that outside of Christ, this is where all humanity goes. We ask, but how could that be possible? Many people ask this, how could a loving God do something like that? There's a lot of answers to that question, but one answer is the final description that Paul uses of our condition, which is in verse 10. For while we were enemies, I want you to know why we're doing this. Paul didn't have to use seven different descriptions. He could use one or two. He chose by the Spirit of God to use seven different descriptions as a summary of the first three chapters of the book culminating into this summary statement here. It's important that we look at this. While we were enemies, the natural result of being, according to Paul, weak, ungodly, unrighteous, no good sinners who are under the wrath of God, the natural and necessary result of that is that we are not outside of Christ, considered to be God's beloved, or God's children, as different religions teach. We're not even His friends in the Bible outside of Christ. By definition, according to those terms, we are His enemies, and enemies both actively and passively so. It's not merely that we're rightly declared by God to be His enemies. It's also that we have postured ourselves as God's enemies, actively seeking to oppose Him. We are, as Paul says in chapter 8, we are ourselves, quote, at enmity with God and at enmity with His will, enemies of God. So no one's thrown anything at me yet. That's good. So now, that's all seven descriptions, so now let's ask the question, how in the world does Paul use that knowledge to make us feel more loved, more loved by God? So going back to verse 8 now, the operative verse here, let's look at it again. But this time, let's analyze it very closely, because while yes, yes, Paul is in some ways offering a very simple gospel message here. He's also pressing on a particular reality about the gospel that is subtle, but if caught, it has a profound impact on our experience of the gospel. So verse 8, God shows His love for us. Just stop right there. God shows His love for us. What does that mean? Depending on your translation, your Bible might say God demonstrates His love, might say God proves His love, might say God commends His love to or toward us. The concept that Paul is getting at with this word is that that God is seeking to elevate your understanding of the quality of His love for you in Christ. And by quality, I mean it's, it's something like the measurable weight of the thing. 
the measurable weight of the thing. It would, it would be kind of like if we put it in this category, is the quality of God's love like a one-carat diamond or is it like a million-dollar, 20-carat diamond? Which one is it? What's he trying to commend to us to show us the quality of his love? He's not just saying God loves you because Christ died for you. He's saying that God is wanting to commend or prove his love in a unique way that we can understand and measure. So back to the verse now. God shows his love for us. How? How does he do that in the passage? Not just that the second member of the Godhead took on flesh and died for us, but that he did so, quote, while we were still sinners. That's the emphasis in the the operative verse, verse 8. While we were still sinners. It's about the timing of Christ's death. That he did so while we were still classified as sinner, while we were weak and ungodly and unrighteous and lacking goodness and sinful by nature and justly under the terrible wrath of God. And while we were properly enemies in both our own estimation and God's estimation, while you were that, Christ was given to you as a gift providing you with everything you would ever need to enter God's good graces, even though it cost him his life. That is is the measurable, measurable point of reference for the quality of God's love. And it's made all the more stark by the fact that according, according to Paul, what he's getting at here is that nobody does something like that. No one. Verses 7 and 8 go together. Is one point here. Verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God's love is such that Christ died for you when you were neither righteous nor good, and in doing that, he commends the incomparable quality of his love toward you. The point is you can't find love like that on earth because no human loves like that. No human loves like this. It's not that the quality of God's love for you is comparable to a 20-carat diamond, if we were going to use that analogy. It's that if his love were a precious jewel or stone, it would be something beyond what can be found on this earth. It would be comprised of materials that don't exist here. That's the point. That's the quality of his love that he's commending for you to analyze. It's otherworldly. It's divine. It's greater than any love you will ever find in this life. And you can know that is true. You can know that's true because it has done things for you in history that no other love can or would ever do for you. Namely, this love sends Christ to die for you while you are a sinner and enemy and everything that those categories entail about you. We don't naturally think this way. That the secret to feeling loved by God and thereby living our lives with with a passion and awe of God and Christ like that woman in Luke's gospel, that the 
that we don't think that the secret to that is an understanding of the depth of our depravity. That's not the direction we go naturally when we want to feel loved. Our culture dodges anything hard or anything corrective usually. It labels them as insensitive or mean or judgmental or as hate speech. The culture around us has taught us to think that being loved is only ever about being affirmed in who we are, even in our sin. And that sentiment has seeped into churches across the nation. And more and more churches no longer talk about sin or hell or wrath to come. And when someone does, it gets really awkward. Talking about it too long, especially. We're supposed to leave those things behind because going over that kind of stuff doesn't make anyone feel loved, supposedly. But the point here is that when it comes to the love of God in Christ, the exact opposite is true. He commends his love, he proves its superior quality and value by pointing to what we were and what we are outside of, Christ, outside of God's grace in Christ. Without that, we can't even know his love properly. We can't even know it. But tragically, because so many of us think talking about hell and sin gets in the way, in our attempts to feel more loved, we dodge that, thinking it'll hurt that effort, and in doing so, we rob ourselves of the very thing that would make us feel more loved than anything else. And then we export that kind of craziness in our evangelism. We don't want to do that when we get out there. That's not going to make people feel loved. And by doing so, we rob the people we witness to of the very thing that would make them feel more loved than anything else. And the very thing that might actually save their souls. God commends His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do these things help us to have more hope in God? How do we get more hope in God from this? And this will be a fast point because it's, it's a brief and relatively obvious point in the passage, but it's in verses 9 and 10, the last two verses. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, and this is the main point to focus on, verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. At this point, Paul uses what we've just went over as a basis, as a, a solid, unshakable, even unarguable, logical basis for why the Christian can hope in the glory to come. Without fear of falling under God's wrath again. This is how we can know that we will not be lost now that we are in Christ. And there's two parts to his logic here to consider. The first one is this the contrast between being enemies of God and being reconciled to God. 
If when we first received God's love and grace, when we first received that, He was willing to give them to us when we were His enemies, then logically, now that we are no longer His enemies, but reconciled, adopted, at peace with God, children of the King in Christ, if that's who we are now, and He was willing to love us with such an extraordinary love when we were nothing but enemies, imagine what His love and grace will do for us now if it did that then. Now that we're reconciled. Think on that for a minute. But also notice how this hinges. It hinges on a proper understanding of sin. It evaporates if you take that out, that foundation out. The second part to consider in his logic here is the contrast between the temporal death of Christ on our behalf and the eternal life of Christ on our behalf. That is, if Christ's dying a vicarious death on the cross, if those momentary temporal things produced such gospel wonders, now that he lives forever as your King and Savior, as your high priest and friend, what wonders do you think that will gain for you? Or more specifically, to Paul's point, if Christ's previous temporal death justified and reconciled you, how much more confident confident can you be that His resurrected life, His eternal life, will continue to protect you from ever having to worry about facing the wrath of God again? I hope you see this. Without the foundation of us as sinners and enemies first, as difficult as it is to think about sometimes without it, according to Paul, we not only lose the proof of the quality of God's love for us, but we lose the confidence and the assurance of our eternal peace with God. We lose our hope in the reward in the process. They're inseparably linked I once preached a message on this same passage. It was similar, but, but very different in other ways. And I gave it a very different title as well, because I was trying to be intentionally provocative. And uh, I titled it, The Beauty of the Doctrine of Sin. But I titled it that way because that's really what I feel like this passage is doing. It causes beauty to shine and radiate out from something that is very dark and very ugly. And it takes what was once the foundation or basis of our condemnation and shame, and it makes it part of God's demonstration of His love for us and part of our hope in eternal life. close on, on, on this. There are several reasons why I chose to do a more difficult sermon like this. And I don't have time to go over all of them. You probably wouldn't be interested in all of them anyway. But one of them, uh, I can say this. I'm becoming increasingly concerned that the culture around us is successfully attacking the foundation for feeling loved by God and for having hope in God. 
That is, it is successfully attacking our understanding of what is right and wrong, what is sin and what is not sin, what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable to God. It's successfully labeling the realities of God's wrath in a future hell as brutal, even nonsensical, labeling them as, as dying teachings of, of, a, of a bygone age from hateful religious bigots. And more and more I see Christians shying away from calling sin, sin. From calling people to repent and to find shelter and safety from the wrath that is coming. More and more I see Christians cowing to the culture and blushing over teachings like this this morning. I hope you hear me. There is a consorted effort to cause you to not believe in or not understand what is truly sinful. There is a blurring of the lines taking place right now. And it's moving forward at drastic speeds. It's looking to cause you to not believe or not understand what's sinful. It's even looking to cause you to hate the idea of anyone preaching and teaching the truth of mankind's fallenness. Don't lose this foundation. Don't lose this foundation. Don't let it be taken from you or lessened in your heart. Because if you do, if you do, there will be a necessary chain reaction that comes from it. A necessary domino effect, if you will. And it will happen in your heart and mind whether you know it's happening or not. It will. If you lessen the realness and seriousness of God's wrath as a just recompense for sin, you necessarily lessen your perception of the heinousness of sin itself. You can't avoid that. And if you lessen the heinousness of sin, you necessarily will lessen the value of the sacrifice for your sin. And if you lessen the value of the sacrifice, you necessarily will lessen the quality of the gift of the one who was sacrificed. And if you lessen the quality of the gift, you lessen the quality of the love which gave you the gift. And if you lessen the Father's love and the gift of Christ, you lessen the power and surety of the gospel. And if you lessen the power of the gospel, you have robbed yourself of the only hope you have in this life, the only hope the church has to offer this world. It all starts with the downgrading of sin. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen in your heart and mind. We have good reason to hold on to it. We have hope and love is our reason to hold on to it. God commends his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's nothing to blush about. Let's pray. God, what do we say to these kinds of things?
We have nothing without your love for us in Christ. We have nothing without him. Thank you for demonstrating the quality of your love in him. Thank you for using it as the foundation of our hope in you. God, would you protect it for us and would you, would you empower us to protect it as well? It's in Christ's name we ask it.